0: My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream. I'm a riff monster. I pride myself on that. I thank God I'm a riff monster. A riff monster, dog. I interview some of the rare few who make their living in the world of entertainment.
1: Just drove by, just rattled their sabers, bam, and then kept stepping.
0: Special thanks to Phil Ranta and the Comedy Podcast Network. Stroll back and forth on that stage like a caged panther. Artwork by Tom Burns
1: And everybody and, and everybody at the table laughed And my mom gave me the back of her hand
0: Original music by Diana Lawrence Being funny has
1: very little to do with being successful as a comedian
0: Oh, that's sad
1: It's hella sad, but it's hella true
0: Send me an email, livingthedreampodcast at gmail.com Dead, wishes you was dead, almost dead, should be dead We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash livingthedreampodcast and I make a living making people laugh. This is episode number 22. I speak with nationally touring comedian Rod Long. All right, living the dream. My name is Rich Baker, and I've got with me Rod Long. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, you are a stand-up comedian uh, who's been doing it for quite some time.
1: Yeah, dude, 27 years.
0: 27 years as a stand-up comedian. 27 years. Has all the 27 years been, um, the like, have, has that been paying the bills all 27 years?
1: Up and down, pretty much, consistently. I, I'm also a stock photographer. Okay, uh, so you have
0: two, two jobs that kind of... Two passions. Rich. Coexist. I,
1: yeah, I'd like, to call, I'd like to call it two passions.
0: Two passions? Two passions. I, like uh, I vi- hope vi- that's yeah. the name of your autobiography, is two passions.
1: No, nah, I don't. I, I think the name of my autobiography will probably be Serious Images of a Funny Man, which is a coffee table book that'll have uh, 32 years of images, maybe some anecdotes, but what I shoot is totally different than what I do on stage.
0: Interesting. I'm, as a oh. comedian,
1: totally night and day different.
0: Wow, okay. Yeah. Well, let's take me back. When uh, was the first time that you said to yourself, you know what, I'm going to stand on stage and tell jokes?
1: You know, let me back up and, and answer that question by saying that well, I think I was probably maybe th- three or four years old. Uh, wow. made the mistake at the dinner table of asking for some damn crackers instead of some graham crackers some damn crackers okay, can I get some damn crackers <laughs> and everybody and and everybody at the table laughed and my mom gave me the back of her hand oh. but what I realized is um, that there is power in making people laugh oh, there's yeah? a rush there's an, uh, you, you know this you know this Absolutely. As, as a standup that there is an undeniable uh, adrenaline rush in the exchange of energy that comes from what's in your brain that comes out of your mouth in other words, that when you externalize your internal dialogue and somebody else picks up on that wavelength, so to speak, and finds it funny, yeah, there's a rush that is undeniable.
0: Oh, I, yeah, I think we're all chasing the heroin.
1: Okay, <laughs> we're all we are all chasing that same smack, Rich. And you know, and I know. So so it was... I, I, I'm not going to say at that point that I decided uh, that I wanted to be a stand-up comedian and that I could stand on stage and make people laugh. Uh, 1975, I was working in Bellingham, Washington for... The Bellingham Herald newspaper. There was a uh, reporter in the office by the name of Stanford Chen, huh. um, uh, Asian guy from Oakland, with more black guys in his head than I had in my old neighborhood. Okay, this <laughs> i will mean, be just, a, a, but a wonderful guy who took me under his wing for the summer of '75, uh, and he had um, a wax copy of Richard Pryor's "That Nigga's Crazy." Yeah. Okay, and I, my life changed. Exponentially, in terms of my appreciation of the power of being able to make people laugh, when I listened to that album, because I would listen to it again and again and again and again with him. And then years later, I still remember being with another comic on the road, another black comic, ironically, and we were in Montana. And we were doing. You were probably uh, the
0: only two black people in Montana. We were, we were, we,
1: we were, we were, every, every town, every town, needless to say, we double D black population every time we pulled into there in Montana. But the great, the great part about it, the great part about it, Rich, was that um, we were doing dueling Richard Pryor's in the car. And we would just go back and forth with just different prior bits. Like
0: you tell a joke, he tell
1: a joke. Well, just out of the clear blue, you know, he and 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 out of the clear blue, he would he would do he would start a prior bit, or I would start. Well, we're just driving. I mean, I want you to imagine we're driving along in what looks like a Pat Metheny CD cover. I mean, you know, it's beautiful beautiful country, but you know, big sky. That's what they call Montana. And uh, you know, all of a sudden, I, I just look at him and say, "I never did like your mama." And he goes, "Who you talking to?" And I go, "I'm talking to you, nigga. You the one in jail." You know, I mean, it was right from the prior and completely, and we're just howling going down the highway. Okay. But um, I also had a guy I worked with, ironically, on a cruise ship years later uh, in the late 90s. By the way, he looked like John Holmes. He looked like the porn actor, John Holmes. Wow, okay. Okay, big, thick mustache, a whole nine yards. I'm sure he wasn't carrying the same package. Nonetheless, he was in the band. He was a recovering heroin addict. And he was recovering, uh, in his detox, he was doing liquid ginseng. And I decided to join him doing these liquid ginseng, like... um, they weren't capsules, but it was like this liquid gel stuff that you could drink. And you could buy them in the, in the pharmacy. All right. And uh, he was looking at me over lunch, and he said, man, you still remind me of Richard Pryor. And I said, dude, you like Pryor? Man, mean, I love Richard Pryor. So now we start a whole back and forth Richard Pryor, our favorite funny Richard Pryor bits. And we're on a, 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 a light rail train in, I'm trying to remember where it was. Was it San Pedro, California? In any case, I think it was San Pedro, it's loaded with agents, loaded with agents. And, and the whole the whole train is full of agents. <laughs> and I look at him, I look at him, and I'm holding onto one of those railing things on the little train. Yeah. And I looked at him, and all I said was, know what they can do? Eat with sticks. Swear to God. And we had to get off the train. It was like, eh, eh let us, off. and we were like literally staggering from the train across the street and laying down and just pounding the ground. Loud. And I still remember the look on these Chinese people's faces. They were looking out of this, you know, out the window of this little train, like, what's so funny, you know? But all it was was, you know, the prior bit, Chinese funny people know what they can do. And all I said was, not Chinese funny people. I'm looking around at all these Asians, and all I said was, looking at him, know what they can do, (laughs) eat with sticks. Swear to God. That's all I needed to say, because it was an immediate kinetic explosion as he got where I was going without even the opening line of the bit. And it's, I think, sometimes the genius of the masters. I you know, with jazz, with art, with photography, with comedy, I have always looked at, uh, with great admiration, the people who came before I did and who are still, in my mind, the masters. A hundred years from now, let me tell you what's great about prior. A hundred years from now, if we're still here, the line, if you had two more inches of dick, you'd find some new pussy here, will still be hilarious. That's true. Okay. And I said that to a TV crew that came by my house after Richard Pryor died, and they were breaking the lights and everything down, they were in my living room talking about Pryor. And uh, I said that, because the guy who was interviewing me, the reporter was a huge Pryor fan, and I said, dude, let me tell you something, 100 years from now, and just what I told you, I said, oh. and he said, you know what, Roger, I said, come on, I know I'm right, you know, yeah, that's fine, I'm gonna find me some new pussy, women get even with your ass, if you had <laughs> two inches of dick, you'd find some new pussy here, boom, are you kidding me, that is timeless funny, that is, I mean, that's, that's as timeless as looking at, I saw Rembrandt's, all of Rembrandt's work in Amsterdam. 400, oh, wow. 400 years of Rembrandt. I started crying in the museum. I was in the Ricks Museum, but I started crying, man, uh, because there was no Polaroid cameras. But his interpretation of light and shadow was, to me, off the charts. Are you kidding me? Yeah. There were no cameras then, dog. How How did? How, in your mind, how did you put all of that together and then paint that? And by the way, if you were out of favor with Rembrandt, you were way in the background on his painting. So if he was pissed at you and you went to see what he was showing... In You were not in good favor, you go, Oh, wow, I'm way back there next to a goat by that barn. And whoops, I didn't know he was pissed at me. Yeah, kind of pissed at you. That's why I'm a little passive aggressive, I think. Quite passive aggressive. <laughs> quite quite passive aggressive. So, um, you know, getting back to, I guess, your question, um, got talked in the stand up on a dare, man. You know, got a journalism degree. Uh, how, old, a, how
0: old are you? Like I'm early 20s? F- I'm, I'm,
1: I'm 50. I was, yeah, I was at that time mid. Uh, I was yeah, mid-twenties, man. Mid-twenties, I, yeah, and, because and they I, dared you. Yeah, um, the crazy part was I had a journalism degree, uh, went to Santa Barbara, went to uh, Brooks Institute, got a film degree. Wow. Studied stills for a year and a half, did a year of motion picture production. Wanted to go to L.A. and write episodic television. Really wanted to write sitcoms. Was so lucky from the standpoint that the job at Peterson's, the associate editor job at Peterson's, kind of fell into my lap. Nice. And I was qualified for the gig. They were very happy that, A, I was qualified, and, B, I was a minority because the woman who was the the associate editor was a woman who was going to the LA Times and was going to be their new book review editor. So they were quite pleased to get, A, a black man to replace a white woman at the magazine, and, B, a guy who was qualified. This wasn't an affirmative action hire. This was a guy... Wait a minute. This guy's a journalist and a photographer? Boom. So there it was. But my network of friends, an actor friend of mine who was a regular on the Jeffersons at the time, uh, a number of uh, guy I went to Brooks with, uh, who by the way was the studio manager for Playboy magazine. Nice, and that's a that's whole another n- who man, a whole another story in itself. My my, and the sounds I heard coming from his bedroom. I remember telling him one time, anybody ever say white dudes don't fuck good, I will come to court and testify on your behalf. <laughs> you the man. You're the man, dog. You are the man. Oh, he was laying pipes, slinging dick, handing out bubble gum. He was getting it. Did His name is Jay Stephen Hicks. Wonderful man. And he and his wife and uh, two kids live in Malibu Canyon uh, to this day. And he makes a great living still. And uh, I'm
0: sure he satisfies her still.
1: So. Oh, he he does. He does. I'm sure he I'm sure he gets all that activity done. Anyway, it was he. Uh, another buddy of mine, Rob Vogel, uh, uh-huh. who's an architect. Uh, a Reagan Republican, when I met him now, to the left of... I mean, he's just so incredibly left-wing. it's He's it's, it's wonderful. Uh, but Rob, another buddy of mine named Roland Wiley, who also uh, is an architect, okay. brother he, he and uh, uh, Rob went to uh, Ball State together and studied architecture. Uh, and like I said, my actor friend, Ernest Harden Jr. Uh, those guys, my network of friends in L.A., um, dared me, dared me to try stand-up. And, and I, I must admit, in a passive-aggressive way, uh, I had so got the rush of making people laugh in the forefront of my mind after Damn Crackers. I mean, it was every chance I got, I would kind of lock. Like that up. was
0: when you were like three or four, and at 25, you're still remembering Do, Damn Crackers.
1: I'm, well, I'm still remembering the rush. I'm still, I'm like, like we what we were talking about initially. I was still chasing that jag, that 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 rush of saying something that I knew was the equivalent of pulling a pin on a hand grenade and putting it in somebody's mouth and then closing their mouth and watching as there was like smoke coming out of their nose and then all the teeth in their head, you know, all rattled and when I opened their mouth, they, you know, fell on the floor like dominoes. I mean, that's a rush, as you know, that's undeniable. Absolutely. Uh, Undeniable rush. Uh, And and I must tell you that um, I had a couple of of hilarious situations before I ever got into stand up, um, where I cracked somebody way up and it was totally off the cuff. Uh, did you ever see the movie To Kill a Mockingbird? Sure. Mm-hmm. Gregory Peck. Yeah. Okay. Uh, remember the brother uh, in the movie Brock Peters who played Play. Tom Robinson? Yeah, yeah, Okay. Great Shakespeare, that uh, barrel chest. <laughs> great James Earl Jones kind of a voice, right? Right, yeah, yeah. I'm working out at the Sports Connection. I dig this, Rick. Rick, this is like 19, uh it's probably 80, maybe early 81. This is where I ever did stand-up now. All and right. I'm working at Peterson's up the hill. I'm on, I'm on the corner of Sunset and La Cienega. That's where my office is. I'm working out on my lunch hour. Here comes Brock Peters into the weight room. I jump off a machine. I run over. Brock Peters. Yes? <laughs> I, said, I said, my man, my name I said, oh, my name is Rod Long. I said, dog. I said, I'm a big fan of your work. Well, thank you, young man. I said, yeah, man, nah, that movie you was in, To Kill a Mockingbird. And I understand I still got his hand right. I'm looking right at this brother. I said, yeah, man, that movie you was in, To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, yes? I said, uh, never for a minute did I think you raped that ugly white bitch. And I'm telling you, there was like two seconds of a pause and he just drops my hand, and he's like, "Ah!" He he bent at the waist, like, "What did you just come over here and say to me?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. I come over. All oh, matter of fact, yeah, man. That movie he was in *The Killer*. Markman. Never for a minute did I think he raped that other white bitch. <laughs> Boom, over. It was over for the brother, man. So <clears throat> that's the kind of stuff that I was doing on a regular basis. And then my friends took me to see a couple of comedy shows. The guys who were trying to talk me to my my network of friends, Rob, Steve, yeah. all these guys. We're at a club in Santa Monica. It's a female headliner. We're sitting right in the front. I'm not so much laughing at her bits as much as I was studying what she was doing. Because more and more I was like inching toward actually doing it. Yeah. Really was. I, it was at the point where I was going, you know what? Why not? <laughs> I, I definitely feel like I want to do this. Uh, I'm cracking my friends up. I'm cracking people up the magazine. I'm, you know, I really do like pe- making people laugh. This is a, a gift. I really, at that time, didn't think like, well, I'm so gift. No, no. But I just thought, wow, it's really easy for me to just flip a switch, and and way crack people up. Yeah. Really, a natural, easy thing for me to do. And I, I don't know if a, a lot of people have that. I think I think you can teach somebody how to hold a microphone. But I don't know if you can teach funny. I think it's like being a Kind of fat, or kind of pregnant, or kind of cancerous. Either you're funny or you're not funny. I don't know if there's a whole lot of gray matter in the middle. I think there's all kinds of degrees of funny. Yeah. But you're funny or you're not funny. There's no kind of funny. Short of funny, you're funny. Or you're not funny. And if you're really funny, um, then God has sprinkled it on you like quicksilver. Uh, and if you are short of funny and you make a living doing this. Uh, it's because you are probably fooling the audience with an act that I can set my watch by cuz it's the same pattern every night and then if you don't do well it's the audience's fault and you're pretty narcissistic and then i think the third kind of person you find in stand up needs therapy cannot afford it and it just goes on stage it just goes on stage dude i'm fucked up let me tell you why i'm fucked up you collectively are the shrinks this area here on the stage is the couch understand <laughs> it okay so now I'm at this club with my, with my, uh, my posse, my L.A. posse, uh, female comedian on stage. She pulls out a blow-up doll. Her closing bit is, uh, is the blow-up doll has a Dodge uniform on. It's a male, right? right? And she hits this hydraulic switch, and a bat comes up out of the doll's lap. Okay, Very phallic-like. okay. <laughs> sure, yeah. And she sticks it out at our table, so everybody's laughing in the club. So I stand up looked back at the audience, looked at her, looked back at the audience, gripped the barrel of the bat and said, he is gifted for a Caucasian player. (laughs) Blew the room up. And I still remember the look on her face as she snatched the doll back and just had this really weird look on her face. And then I sat down and I could feel all that laughter that had been directed toward her suddenly on my shoulders. And my buddy Rob leaned down and he goes, that's what I'm talking about. Don't tell me you can't do this.
0: Wow. No so shit. do you remember uh you don't have to remember maybe one of the first jokes he told like you dude I tell
1: you, I'll tell you exactly what the first thing I did was what would you do I pulled. I went I was I was at Westwood at the comedy store and uh by the way Sam Kennison was there before Kennison busted out okay yeah, yeah I was uh and uh I was comic number seven I will't forget that it was called they called it potluck night you just went down you signed up and then you know they, they had different people and uh potluck night I was comic number seven I went down to the uh uh it wasn't like it was like a Rite Aid, but it was a grocery store there on Westwood Boulevard, mm. and I bought a can of Decon, roach killer. <laughs> Got up on stage, and said, "Decon fogon kills bugs dead." Went right into Ali. Let me repeat myself. Decon, Fogon kills <laughs> bugs dead. Speaking of killing things, let the butterball whipping Larry Holmes gave Jerry Cooney be a lesson. All you white men out there dreaming, drinking raw eggs out of a blender, watching Rocky, your dreams will turn to nightmares. Even if you hit the man in his privates, I promise you, kills bugs dead. And the and the audience starts clapping and crack because Ali was still very obviously prominent. In, oh and yeah, yeah, sure. So all that and uh, what I suddenly did was realize that I wasn't at one of my friends' house in the kitchen at a house party cracking people up, that it wasn't shipping day at the magazine, everybody's stressed and you know, I'm, you know, easing the tension, I'm stressing another issue of the magazine by cracking people up in the in the art department, whatever. Uh, that this was, you know, a stage and there was my friends, but Mostly strangers. Yeah. And I completely froze up at that point. I mean, I, I went you, away.
0: You killed him with your first bit.
1: Killed him. And then went, I bet, I bet. and I still remember sitting on the car with my boy. man. We had a Gordon, uh, Gordon Lewis, brother working for uh, Kiron Lens Manufacturing at the time. He was a big fan. He was one, also one of the people in the photographic industry who was telling me, you funny, man. You need to get on stage. But uh, we went out to his car after the gig. little cassette recorder. He had a little cassette. And I still remember we sitting in the car and uh, burning a joint. And listening to my set, and what I couldn't believe was the first bit, and listening to all those people laughing, you know, and it wasn't quite like obviously like Richard Pryor, did, but it was like so surreal for me to sit there and go, "Wait a minute! First of all, that's me. Yeah. Second of all, there's a bunch of people in that club laughing at me doing Ali doing that decon takeoff. Yeah. And so I, you know, I just kind of I I worked it from there. And they started a, uh, it got to the point they started putting me up just before Sam Kennison. Wow. They, that fast? To, uh, within, within about four months, they went, this guy. And then it was one Sunday night, man. And I just destroyed. I, was all, I always had new material. Kennison was waiting in the wings to go up, and he called me over. He had that beret on, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, uh, hey, brother, can I ask you a personal question? I said, because uh, I had never met him. I do my set and leave, right? I just didn't hang out. He personal question. I said, yeah, what's that, man? He said, is that, that your real name, Rod Long? <laughs> I said, yeah, that's my name, man. He goes... That ain't even fair. Funny black man named Rod Long. Yeah. He goes, fuck, man. He just go, he goes, he goes, fuck, man. My name is Sam. I go, Sam. He goes, yeah, Sam Kennison. And I, sh- I never forget that. I'm shaking his hand. And he says, has Mitzi seen you? And I said, who's Mitzi? And he said, Mitzi Shore. She runs a comedy store on Sunset. He said, Mitzi needs to see you. I said, you think so? He goes, yeah. He goes, you got new stuff every time I see you. He goes, uh, what do you do? And I said, I'm a writer. He said, well, shit, that's obvious. I said, no, I'm a writing a photographer. I worked for Peterson's Publishing Company over in Hollywood. He said, "Obviously, you write your material." I said, "Yeah." He goes, "Yeah, you're you're not a photographer, writer for a magazine." He goes, "Shit, man, you're a comedian." He goes, "You're you're really funny, man." Wow. He goes, "You're really funny. Mitzi needs to see." He goes, "You want me to set that up?" I said, "I don't think I'm ready yet, man. Won't you give me a little time?" So a couple months later, I think it was, I went over there and it was a Monday night. And dude, guess what? This is when I found out about the politics of stand-up. This is crazy shit, Rich. Um, 24 comics on the bill huge ridiculous showcase there was one comic up before me I made him years later in, in uh, Arizona I think it was in Phoenix we were working together named G.E. Howard up to that point he got the biggest laugh of the night cuz back in them days you could grab your dick and get laughs okay sure. and he said he was taking his date to eat at his favorite restaurant grab his dick and said the Black Angus that was the biggest laugh of the night dog I got up number 21 out of 25 i never forget this destroyed and when I say I destroyed I destroyed and when and I was going to get off. The light kept going on and coming off. Going on and coming off. I must have stayed up there by 13, 15 minutes. Killed. Wow. Destroyed. Destroyed. Tell you destroyed, okay? The MC, as I signed off and the audience is going nuts, brushed past me like I had talked about his mother for 15 minutes up there on the stage. I'll never forget that. He gave me the shoulder thing, like, you know, the, yeah. okay? And there was two black women sitting right as I walked off the stage. And one of them grabbed my arm as I walked by and said, I just want to touch you, brother, because you're going to be a star. So now I understand there's a buzz all around me. I don't even know who Mitzi is. There's a Puerto Rican comic who's been working at uh, both the uh, uh, Westwood Comedy Store and at the Sunset Comedy Store. So he walks over, and I knew I had done well, man. I mean, like, really well. exceptionally, obviously, funding everybody that was showcasing. And he says, uh, Hey, man, has Mitzi said anything to you? And I'm like, Mitzi? He goes, yeah, Mitzi, showing, man. I go, I don't even know who he goes. Mitzi right there, man. And so now... I look and here's this woman and she's like this pointing at somebody on stage and there was two comics. They were like lab dogs, man. Everywhere in the room she pointed, they were like this. When she would point, their heads would go that way and he says, that's Missy right there, man. He goes, "Uh, but you got to understand something, man. She's not going to give you any play tonight because you killed, man. And they want to know how bad you want it, man. They want to know how bad you want it. I go, what? I go, I just thought all it was about was to be, no, he goes, no, man, no, no. You killed it first time, the games begin. I go, what? He goes, no believe me. So, I'm not thinking anything. I leave the club. I got some friends there, people from the magazine. Everybody's tripping. Wow, great. Wow, you really, man, that was, whoa, you really can't, you know. All yeah, that. yeah. Two days later. Now I'm on the corner of Sunset and La Cienega. The comedy store is across the street next to the Hyatt, okay? Okay. Where the Jewish comic threw himself off from the top of the Hyatt down onto the awning of the comedy store. Much drama back in the day, dog. Trust wow. me. Much drama. And by the way, Mad at Mitzi, that's why he did that. Didn't he show Mitzi? I'll fix you. I'll kill myself. Didn't he fix Mitzi? Anyway. <laughs> I called the comedy store because it's two days. I haven't heard nothing. And a uh, woman answers the phone. It's a woman named Joanne, who later, by the way, when Mitzi opened the comedy store over in Hawaii, Maui or somewhere, she went over to manage the club and ended up taking the club from Mitzi. Oh. You know, kind of hard to babysit a club when you're in L.A. and the club's all on Maui. You know, sure, yeah, kind of yeah, hard yeah. to keep an eye on shit. <laughs> you wake up in the middle of the night, somebody's stealing from my ass. Get on the phone. Anyway, um, I said... Uh, as Mitzi showing? And she said, who's calling I said, Rod Long. She goes, d- uh, d- her, her voice changed. She goes, oh, oh, wait a minute. You were here Monday night showcasing. I said, yeah, I was. She said, uh, so what can I help you with? I said, well, I just wanted to get some feedback on my set. She goes, hold on a minute. Two minutes goes by. She comes back to the phone. She says, Mitzi said to tell you that you stole your material and that you're on probation from the Sunset Comedy Store, but she'll look at you again in six months, but that it's okay for you to continue to work your material out in Westwood. And I said, I swear, what I still remember was I just had this hot flash where I went, ain't a damn thing I said up there that I stole. That was all my material. I was hella funny, obviously way funnier than everybody else in here that night. What kind of game? And what I remember saying was, I just thought all this was about was being funny. I had no idea that there was bull, and I didn't even get bullshit out. And she hung the phone up on me. And dude, I didn't wow. do, and I didn't do stand-up anymore in L.A., I never did it again in LA and when I moved back to Seattle um I think I kind of carried all that around with me and uh I uh when I moved back to Seattle I was a I was a finalist in a comedy competition in Seattle in 84 nice. still relati- relatively new and then the next time I did it I won. Yeah. Okay. So but dude, you know what I always say about this business and 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 I really believe this and this is from having been in the game a long time. Yeah. Um Being funny has very little to do with being successful as a comedian.
0: Oh, that's sad.
1: It's hella sad, but it's hella true, okay? Uh, I think being funny helps you to have integrity and respect for your craft and to know that every night that you're on that stage that you are telling the cruel truth and making it funny. But as far as uh, if you put your yardstick and your barometer for success in... The terms of well let's see did I get a Leno? did I get a man what separated Johnny Carson from everybody else that had and now has talk shows was Johnny was never afraid of people who were funnier than him mm. who might upstage him when they came on that stage that's how David Brenner and Robin Williams and Freddie Prince and Richard Pryor all these funny motherfuckers all were introduced to America cuz Johnny wasn't afraid like other people are afraid and I won't mention any names. Oh wow, I didn't okay? even
0: I didn't think about that.
1: Dog, scared to death. Don't want to see nobody funny on them up there. <laughs> Come on, man. Stay wow. your ass in the background somewhere. So,
0: put him in the back of the Rembrandt painting.
1: Dog, thank you. Way in the back, next to the next to the goat at the barn. Wow. And so, my and 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 here's how I know what I'm saying is gospel. I don't know if anybody in America, and I'm a journalist and a photographer, turnstamp. I don't know if anybody in America had funnier material during and including the first day slash night white Bronco chase of the OJ Simpson saga than I did. Trust me. And you know how I know that? I had a tape of some OJ material. O.J. trial and dude, I broke the whole thing down. Okay, the reason the brothers, the gloves didn't fit the brother. He was in jail for a year with no dates. Of course, his hands were a little bigger than they were when they locked him <laughs> up. I I broke the whole thing down and it started the first night. I was in I was in Reno at the uh, MGM Grand. Yeah. George Miller, rest in peace, George Miller, who did Letterman and and uh, Leno a hundred times. He was Letterman's old roommate in college. He a hundred times at least. Wow. Opened that night. Now, by the way, understand, this is on the way to the gig. Here's what I still remember. I'm on my way down the hall to go and do the show, and this was the night of the afternoon of the surreal scene of Al Collins and O.J. Simpson on the freeway in that white Bronco, okay? Uh Uh-huh, yeah. Now, up and down the hallway at the MGM is faded black-and-white photographs of Hollywood greats, but of the past. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so now I'm walking down the hall to get the elevator to go down to the comedy club. And as I'm walking down the hall, I'm walking past these photographs, pointing and saying, "Dead, wishes you was dead, almost dead, should be dead," all the way down the hall. Right (laughs) now, I get to the elevator. Here's this elderly white woman who has turned around. She's looking at me coming. The elevator arrow is pointing down. Okay. I look. I see the arrows pointing down. Obviously, we both going down. About a minute goes by. Ding. Elevator opens. I look at her because I'm a gentleman. I'm old school. I like. She goes, oh, no, 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 actually, I'm, I'm going up, right. But, you know, what happened is, the elevator opens, there's a black couple on the elevator. Oh. So now I get on the elevator, and it closes, but she quickly turns her back to the elevator. I looked at them as we heading down to the lobby. I said, she knew better than to get on this elevator I'd have been stabbing her ass. Then you'd have pulled a (laughs) white Bronco around the front. Next thing you know, your wife's on TV begging for both of us to please pull our black asses over and turn ourselves into the police. Now, the elevator opens, and they're up against the wall. Like, I have machine gunned them. I never said, by the way, come see my show. I just fucked them up. The hand grenade, the pin on the hand grenade, yeah. boom, boom, and walked off the elevator and through the casino on my way to the comedy show. Oh, you're like okay. a
0: drive-by comedian.
1: Just drove by, rattled, just rattled their sabers, bam, and then kept stepping. And they were like, I still remember, man, I turned up, they were just howling on the elevator. <laughs> now, understanding that shit had just happened, the White Bronco thing, the whole thing. And I opened with saying that they had switched the Kino channel over in my room to show the White Bronco. Oh, went off, opened, talking about it. So during the course of the O.J. Simpson trial, I had the most ridiculous stuff just short of the dancing idos. So my point is, I finally got a call from The Tonight Show asking if I was represented. And my naivety, I proudly said that I was not. And about a month or two later, got a form letter, which I planned to pay for a bathroom with, by the way, that said, while we think you have talent at this time, you're not ready for our show, But whatever. My point is this. Too many people, too many comics... Think if they don't get the Montreal Comedy Festival, uh, the Boston Comedy Festival, the Vegas Comedy Festival, Chicago Comedy Festival. If I don't get Letterman, if I don't get Leno, if I don't get Conan, oh my God, I, I, I really didn't make it, did I? Bullshit, man. I will not give those people that kind of power in my career to dictate that by virtue of me being suddenly... Uh, worthy at having passed the litmus test of what they consider to be funny, now calling myself a successful comic. I wish I would give them motherfuckers that kind of power over me, dog. I can't do it. And I won't do it. And I make a living making people laugh. And 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 for a while. And for a while. And I'm true to my craft. And I'm sober now, which I wasn't for a long time but the drinking thing. is a whole nother conversation, but it got out of control once my sis died and this crazy bitch I was in love with it broke my heart. Whole nother conversation, sidebar. We won't even get into it. But as a sober person now, uh, trust me, uh, life is good. Uh, I think, uh, to quote Al Pacino from *Sin of a Woman, I'm just getting warmed up. I really do. <laughs> I really do. I just think, I, I really think I'm just getting warmed up. And, and I thank God every day for that, for the blessing, for the gift that is my life that I can do what I do, thank God I'm funny, and then I can go to places that are amazing and uh, do what I do with my camera. Uh, and that's a whole nother rush for me because I can show you something I shot 30 years ago. I'm still fired up about it. Nice. Uh, but to tell you that I, you know, hit Brock Peters, you know, in the solar plexus, you know, from across the room at the Sports Connection Health Club, that's a story that's, you know, like a train that went by or the last port we just pulled out of. That, that wake has disappeared. That water's flat now out there. You know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, uh, but it's a great living. It's a great life, uh, and, and, uh, and unlike a whole lot of my peers who have been in the game for a while and who never, quote, made it, I am not bitter. Uh, I am more determined than ever to still uh, have my story, have my say. Uh, I'm doing a documentary film called Serious Images of a Funny Man that will combine my art and my stand-up, just, just vignettes. And then there'll be different comics who respect the hell out of what I do that I'll have interviews with during the course of it. Wow. And I'll submit that to the Montreal Comedy Festival because they got a film thing. Then that way I ain't got to suck somebody's ass or jump through some hoops with a bunch of young comics who've paid no dues but figure they deserve to be there because they the new breed of young guns. <laughs> right. You understand what I'm saying? I hear you. And so, dog, comedy like the Marine Corps, many called, few chosen.
0: What uh, advice would you give to, let's say, some high school kid comes up to you and says, uh, Mr. Long, I want to be a comic. W- what, what should I do?
1: I would, first of all, ask him why he wanted to be a comic. You're a class clown. You just like to disrupt things in class. Is that why you think you really need to be up there on that stage? What is your message? Why do you think you need to do that? And if it is because you really genuinely have the gift of funny, by all means, you must pursue it. If it's because you are lazy and don't want to work, then by all means, son, get additional skills before you step out on that stage. But in the meantime, go to open mics because the audience will quickly let you know if you should be up there on that stage.
0: Yeah a friend of mine once said that uh, comedy is, is the most uh, like it's got the most justice because you could do a, a drama you could do you know some kind of play and people will go well oh, I think I liked it I did and they'd argue about it but like with comedy they either laugh or they don't
1: like I said Rich funny you're not
0: funny you're not black or white I got cancer
1: or you don't okay um,
0: I, hope, I hope I don't you know what I'm
1: saying yeah me too <laughs> that's, that's, that's two of us hope we ain't got that shit no
0: I think but, we're good for now
1: yeah yeah me too me too but um, it's not rocket science. I, I I think it's a. I think actually it's a little bit more difficult. I think you can teach somebody to build a rocket. I don't know if you can teach somebody to tell a joke.
0: Yeah, that's a good point.
1: Okay. I I really do. I really do think that we are jesters. Um, think about this man in the Middle Ages, uh, court jesters. Okay. The king desperately needed to be entertained. Court jesters. That's when the court jesters came through. Yeah. Now if they didn't like your your act, off with your head. Now that's a, <laughs> that's a tough audience. That's a tough audience. That's tough audience. Get that motherfucker over here and put his head down. Walk, you know. Next, who? Uh, blah, 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 I'll be back. I'm going to write three more new minutes. I know you're going to love this. Okay. And then I'll come back. <laughs> oh my God, his head's rolling down the street. You know, boom. It's 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 a tough. It's of all. I think of all the performing arts, I believe that the degree of difficulty of stand up is a ten every night. Yeah. Uh, I, that part, uh, I I love. By the way, I I revel in the challenge of that. I don't think you can ever mail it in. There's no such thing as just mail it in your set. Oh, yeah, man. I'm just going to get up here and on autopilot. I'm going to just kill a room full. You can't do it. You know, there, there takes the confidence to get up there in the first place. The confidence in knowing that you have something funny to say to the audience. That's that's first of all. Got to have the confidence. I ain't saying being cocky. I don't say you do what, what prior made really funny, which was the ability to stroll Back and forth on that stage like a caged panther <laughs> and use profanity and staccato fashion and still make you laugh. Your gut's out because he was telling the cold, cruel truth, okay? And you see, I see all, I see people all I would say Chris Rock, Mike, I see all these brothers who just do prior, okay? That's not to say that Chris Rock doesn't have a message because he does, he's hella funny. Sure, yeah. some of what he says is so profound and so funny but the whole idea of the whole pacing back and forth on a big stage and have that was Richard Pryor that was the guy who's no longer here but that was the guy who was the trailblazer okay and before him there was Lenny Bruce who was dead in the bathroom you know with a bunch of track marks in his arm
0: yeah
1: hella sad you know and, and of course Carlin I mean there's there's some people out there uh genius just genius to take pain and to channel it into funny, dude, the the aspects of pathos that are involved in stand the whole psychological study of why we laugh, the whole idea that our main objective, really, if you think about it, is sometimes to take what is heinous and make it hilarious. Hmm. Okay, when uh, when you were in Seattle, did you go to the Experience Music Project Museum? Okay, no. it's over by the Space Needle. It's, uh, it's a Frank Gehry, the guy who did the Disney building in L.A., yeah, okay? Sure. So it's, you know, it's one of them, I call it, I call it a three-bong design. <laughs> My man was at the Green Lantern in Amsterdam, hit that pipe a couple of times, said, all right, give me a piece of paper, let me just draw what I think is going to be great. <laughs> and it looks, when you go up in the space and you look down, it looks like a smashed guitar. Oh, wow. Okay? Five days after 9-11 now, dog. Understand this. 9-11, Red Cross benefit, Comedy Underground, packed. I closed the show. Only one comic had mentioned 9-11. Only one comic had mentioned it, just said, you know, with, with everything that happened, just, we appreciate you guys being here because it's really, man, I got up, like I said, I'm a journalist and a photographer. For, of course I look at everything in a, in a completely obtuse fashion. Yeah. Okay? I got up, I said, none of us will ever forget last Tuesday. None of us. For you young people here, that was November 22nd, 1963. I said, but I watched those two planes hitting those buildings. I was thinking, if this ever happens in Seattle, the only place I will feel safe hanging out is the Experience Music Project Museum. Because from the ground in the air, it looks like a plane barrel rolled in a couple of times. The room exploded, dog. Wow. The, and the catharsis of having that many people say, wait a minute, that guy just did a joke about 9-11. Now, he didn't talk about the horrible tragedy that happened, but all he said was, if this shit happens in Seattle, I'm going to be in the one building in Seattle that already looks like a plane hit it, which is this, ex- this experienced music project museum designed by Frank Gehry. And what was priceless to me was the comics in the back of the room who were all like this in the back going, that motherfucker that <laughs> fucking opened with that shit and ki- really? He opened with it? But dog, you know what? I'm a riff monster. I pride myself on that. I thank God I'm a riff monster. A riff monster, dog. I, I had somebody on an NPR interview one time asked me what doing stand-up was like in terms of taking current events. I said, it's like pissing in the eye of a hurricane and never getting wet. Wow. Because it is, man. We're walking on a blade up there on that stage, dude. You know that. Oh, yeah. It's a blade up there. The key is to not get cut.
0: I love it. Rod, uh, thank you so much for the interview. Is there anything you want to plug? You got a website or YouTube uh, uh, videos? Hey, or man, thing? you
1: know what? Uh, let me plug the fact I got four great sons Keenan, uh, who's 22 now, Quentin, who just turned 16, Joshua, uh, and uh, Elliot, who are my twins. They are 13. They are my best work. Wow. And nice. they, they live in Seattle, and uh, I love my guys. And whenever I'm out here, I miss them. So at some point, they can come to the ship so that they can eat Norwegian cruise lines out of house and home. <laughs> instead of their dad I look forward to that so uh, there it is man no website stuff I stay tuned uh, I've, uh, I've I've got some uh, yeah some I, script work uh, or it,
0: I want to google that uh, documentary whenever we, you're
1: I, w- I will keep you posted on everything that's happening on that I also just signed a contract with spaces images which is a stock photography agency spaces S-P-A-C-E-S, images.com mm-hmm. and so uh, after this is this being coming up on the new year um, after the first of the year, they will edit what I've sent them and there'll be some of that, but I'm blowing my website up, you know, dude, work in progress. Like we were saying earlier, Absolutely. Is, it's your life is a work in progress. And if you create every day, then I do believe you are doing God's work. That's what God did. He created this insane planet. And next thing you know, we trying to kill each other because your God said that my God is wrong. And,
0: our That's, gods should really come together oh, it's, so at it's about some time. point. You know what I
1: think? It, it's time for alien intervention. I want the Martians or somebody from another universe to attack us so that collectively, as humankind, we can decide we hate a common enemy, not hate the president, not hate the Republican, just hate a common enemy and just come together as humankind. uh,
0: If that happens, I sincerely hope that I'm in the comedy club you're performing in because I know you'll have immediate material about the Martians right there.
1: Oh, got got to get busy about them slapping high 15s, laughing their three heads off about our dysfunction (laughs) at the junction lives down here on this planet. Mm. You already know, dog. I love it.
0: Rod Long, thank you. Living the dream. Thank you, Rich huge thank you to phil ranton the comedy podcast network original artwork by tom burns original music by diana lawrence if you have questions about the show or suggestions for who i should interview next drop me an email living at gmail.com find us on facebook facebook.com slash hey if you haven't already done so subscribe on itunes leave us a comment rate the show i appreciate all that like our facebook page it all helps me out i appreciate it Next week's episode features NBC writer Mark Swanner. Thanks for listening. My name is Rich Baker, and this is Living the Dream.